0: Good morning Harvest, great to be with you this morning as always, (laughs) those of you that I know and don't know hope to get to meet soon and those with us live and live stream welcome everyone, Uh, what a sweet time of worship it's been uh, this morning thus far, if you know Sheba especially, Sheba just to add my word of uh, commissioning and blessing to you, you've been a real blessing to us and to me personally. I've got to know Sheba the last two years as she mentioned in her story, came for downline and uh, some, some students just kind of stick out, uh, and she's one of those, just because of her humility and her faithfulness and uh, her servant's heart. Just watched her like a sponge soaking up God's Word, and uh, it's one thing to be a great learner, but it's another to be a great student, really putting into practice what you're learning. And have just watched her walk in faithfulness, and uh, this year as a staff member at Harvest, I can speak for all of our staff and say, we've just been blown away by Sheba. She is really a jewel in, uh, in the king's crown. And I'll tell you, uh, her decision to go to North India as the Lord has led is one that she doesn't take lightly and we don't either. And I want us all to just be praying for her. Even as we were having the missions moment this morning, my mind just went to the Beatitudes where Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And uh, Sheba, I think of you when I think of that verse. Uh, you have such a pure heart, and I pray that the gift would be your ability to see God in such a special way in your life and in the lives of those you're ministering to. So we're going to be praying for you, and thank you for your example. Uh, this morning, we're continuing on in our uh, series in Ephesians, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 24. If you're able, why don't you stand for the reading of God's Word? The word of God reads this way. The Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every, above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of God for the people of God. The people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, thank you for a few moments as we just still our hearts and seek you through the pages of your word. Lord, speak to us out of Paul's letter this morning. We know that you inspired these very words to your followers in Ephesus, and Lord, we know they take on great weight and meaning to your followers today at Harvest Church. And I pray that they would that your word would go forth and not return void, as you have promised it won't. And Lord, we thank you for Sheba. Her example to us is inspiring. It certainly is to me, and. Just ask for your blessing on her, your protection on her, that your purposes in her life will prevail, that the enemy's schemes would not distract her to tour her from your calling on her life, and that her ministry in North India may be fruitful to the very ends of the earth, and we may celebrate her faithfulness in the way it brings glory to you for all of eternity. So thank you for our dear sister. Lord, for our time in your word, your word is precious. Produce in us your image this morning. As we decrease and you increase, Lord, you must. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, James Montgomery Boyce is one of those guys that I like to read, uh, like to listen to. He is really a contemporary, just passed away in 2000 and um, and is, uh, I think he was 62 years old. But great scholar of the word and um, he was asked near the end of his life, what is the most pressing need in American Christianity? And when he was asked that question, he said, well, I wouldn't separate American Christianity from all Christianity when I answer this question. But he said, I think the most pressing need for Christianity is for Christians who know God. And that might sound pretty simple and, and, and pretty easy, but he was getting to the heart of something that this text gets to the heart of. That it's easy to, especially if you're a student of God's word, to know all about God. God. And to know of God and even to revere God, and yet not really to know Him, not in way of intimate relationship. I think of the way uh, my sons know my father, uh, who passed when I was 16, and uh, they. Uh, they love him, they love to speak of him. They know his words, you know, the, the, the sayings, the things that he would like to say. They know his ways, I've told them all about him. They know whatever wisdom he had that was passed on to me, I've passed on to them. They would know his will, what he was about, what he lived for, and they would know his works, all the great things that he did and accomplished. They know those things, and they speak of him with great honor. They revere him, they're proud of him, and to be his, and yet, that's very different than how they know Granddad, Catherine's father, another dear and godly man that we're blessed to have in our family. And uh, the difference is they hear his voice. The difference is they know the intimacy of his presence. And I would say that I think this is right at the heart of what James Montgomery Boyce is talking about, of what's most important in your life the life of believers in the church is that you don't merely know the words and the works and the will and the wisdom of God and the ways of God and revere him and speak of him honorably and be proud of being his and yet not know the sound of his voice and yet not know the intimacy of his presence and that probably is indeed the state of much of the church. And this is a problem. Uh, How do you get to know God the same way you get to know anyone else? (laughs) You spend time with them, and and intentional time. It's uh, quality time that comes out of quantity time. Uh, I've learned with my wife, 16 years together, I've learned that there's some, some fundamentals of getting to know someone. You, you've you've got to be willing to unveil your heart to them. You've got to share. You've you, you got to speak. You've got to share what's going on in your life. You've got to talk about the things you're most proud of and most ashamed of. You've got to talk about your greatest uh, hopes and joys and, and yet your fears and failures. And you've got to unveil your heart. You've got to be vulnerable. You've got to be real. So God invites us to do that with him. And at the same time, you've got to be uh, Interested in as Catherine unveils her heart to me, I'm listening. I've I've learned a few things in marriage. 16 years, I've learned a few things. One of which is she, she really is honored, feels valued, feels loved, feels known. If I listen with my eyes, anybody else ever been told that that I'm not like doing something and kind of giving the proverbial uh huh, but that I'm really not doing anything else. That I'm just listening to her intently. That she loves that. It's like a love language. I mean, she just really feels honored and valued. And so I've learned that, but but you have to actually uh, listen, hear and listen when someone unveils their heart to you, as God has done to us through the pages of his word. And yet I've learned something else. This is just still fundamentals. Just looking at Catherine when she speaks and nodding her head and having nothing else distracting and listening, even that, if if the subject of our conversation is that she would like me to take out the trash, not that we ever talk about that, but if I say, if I even ask follow-up, do you mean trash right here around kitchen or a whole house and she says oh whole house I mean I can listen I can ask follow-up questions I can listen with my eyes I cannot be distracted and I can say sure and I can walk off and she can say where are you going I say I'm going to watch football what about taking out the trash oh no I I was listening but I got better things to do than to do that how do you think that would go no no. (laughs) Hank knows Hank you've been there longer than I have I'll tell you this, it wouldn't go well, she wouldn't feel loved, wouldn't feel valued, wouldn't feel honored, wouldn't feel heard, wouldn't feel known. Obedience is just, it's, it's part and parcel to knowing and learning. I, I would say that this is true, that there are some Christians who can't know God. The way that we're going to hear about in our text today, the way that Paul is yearning for Christians to know him, not merely to know about him, but to know him, some Christians can't. Because there's sin rooted in your heart, there's disobedience that you're unwilling to confess or deal with and God won't cohabit with sin. So you'll just know him at arm's length. You'll know of him, words, will, ways, wisdom. You may even revere him, but you won't know the intimacy of his presence. You won't know the voice of the good shepherd as he gently calls to lead you. Paul has just written the greatest sentence in human history. Verses 3 through 14, a English teacher's pet peeve of run-on phrases, grammatically horrible, but theologically profound. One sentence in Greek. We took three sermons to talk about it, and it tells the unbelievable story of a sovereignly, infinitely free and wise God who predestined and chose and adopted a people for Hisself, and who sent His only Son who redeemed us by his blood and imparts his spirit to indwell those who believe, who receive the gift of redemption by grace through faith and are then sealed by the spirit. The whole redemptive activity of the triune God of the universe, 3 through 14. It's profound, it's awesome. And Paul pauses then. He doesn't keep going. That's a mouthful right there. (laughs) He doesn't keep going. He hits his knees. It's, It's almost odd. He's preaching to them about the glory of redemption, and then he stops to pray for them. And his prayer is that they wouldn't just know of these great theologically weighty truths, but that they would relationally know and enjoy the God of these theological truths. You with me? This is what's most pressing in the church today, that we might not be a people. You know, if there's undealt with sin in your heart, then there's a blockage between that theological goodness that gets into your head and that uh, uh, enjoyment of his presence that gets in your heart. There's a blockage in there somewhere. And we can fill your head all day with information. But if that blockage is not removed, then you're just going to get a big head and not a burning heart. Remember in Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, the, the two, they heard what Jesus said and their hearts burned The scriptures are are meant to make your heart burn with affection for Christ. It's not meant just to fill your minds with more information. That's what this is about. That's why Paul stops to pray. And in his prayer, he says, for this reason. Okay, for the reason of the weighty glory of redemption that he has theologically laid out, the activity of the Father, of the Son, of the Spirit, who we are, whose we are, in light of the gospel, for this reason. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's how you receive salvation. You trust on him. You put your whole confidence in him. There's no other object of our faith that is salvific in nature, Christ alone. And your love toward all the saints, that's the fruit of salvation. You have faith in Christ and a love for the saints. Paul says, because I've heard this about you, look at his first reaction. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Praise God. There's a, a, a divine work that's been imparted to you. The, the Holy Spirit has captured your mind and your heart and your imagination with the truth of your sin, your need, and the salvific work of Christ on the cross, and you've been redeemed. And Paul says, I thank God for it. Thank God for your salvation. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ... The Father of glory, and then he's going to make a request of you that are saved. Before he does, the Father of glory, I, I think that phrase is really neat. Glory is just, uh, we can't really get our minds around glory. You know, In the Old Testament, God said you can't see his face and live. Paul gets a vision of glory, 2 Corinthians 12, uh, where he's taken to the third heavens and receives a vision of glory. That's what it says. And, and he says... I nor any other man can even utter phrases of it. I can't speak of it. I saw it, but I can't tell you about it. You're like, ah, give me something. Uh, Romans 8, he does say this. I can tell you this your sufferings on this earth aren't even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed when Christ comes again. It's from a man that's seen it and from a man who knew suffering. Uh, Why did Paul get that vision of glory? I don't know. Maybe it's because of the suffering he would have to endure that he wouldn't lose hope. Maybe it was because of the suffering that we might endure that he might give us that encouragement. Don't worry, no matter where you are or what you're going through, no matter how tragic it may be, it doesn't compare to glory. And he says, I thank God for your faith, and I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, so he's praying this for believers, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. He wants us to understand in our minds the truth of the gospel. And yet He couples that with verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. It's a mindset and a heart set. That's probably not a word. But that's what He's after, your mind and your heart. I don't want you to just know intellectually, I want you to know experientially. I don't want you to just know of God. I want you to know Him. Paul would write that in Philippians 3. I want to know. Christ. I'd consider everything else, every other good thing and accomplishment in my life rubbish. I'd give it all up to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and the power of attaining to his resurrection from the dead. So he wants that for these believers. He wants that for these believers gathered here today. And he says, I want you to know, have knowledge of him, the eyes of your heart enlightened. Uh, Brother Herb Hodges was is a spiritual grandfather to me in the faith, Yeah, that spent so many years discipling Soup who became a spiritual father to me. And Herb used to say that this passage, he says, Kenan, the most important passage you could ever pray for someone, a lost person or even a brother in Christ, is Ephesians 1, 15 through 18. It's a, it's a prayer of illumination, spiritual illumination, that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened, that they might see Christ in the gospel, that they might really know God and not merely of him. So there's no greater prayer you can pray for anyone. You really love somebody, you pray this. God open the eyes of their heart to the great mystery of the gospel. What is the mystery of the gospel? Three things that we're meant to have every day. The hope to which he's called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance to in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power. Let's look at each one. First, Pray that the eyes of their heart, I'm praying the eyes of your heart and mine are open to know what is the hope to which he has called you. What is the hope to which he has called you? Whenever we talk about hope in Scripture, it's just different than what we think of hope. Hope is not, I hope my team wins today. Not biblical hope. It's not, I hope the rain holds off today. I hope we don't get rained out this week. That's 50-50. That's flip a coin. That's who knows. And that's generally what we think of hope. You know, maybe this will happen. I want it to, but I don't. Biblical hope is tethered to an assurance. The assurance is Christ risen from the grave. So anything that we hope in in Christ, we have as much assurance as we do Christ being alive. So he says, I want you to know what is the hope of your calling. Your calling is to a new resurrected life right now that you would not be the person you once were. And one day that you would be eternally in his presence. Your calling is nothing less than salvific, that you are of the redeemed. Paul wants you to know the hope of that calling. He wants you to know the biblical promise and assurance of that calling. And so, I think about Christmas, about this time every year, September. This is when I start kind of tuning my ears and eyes and heart towards December 25th. And I would say December 25th is not a might happen, might not. Now, I understand I may or may not be here, and I understand that the Lord may or may not proceed that date with his coming. But assuming I'm here and my loved ones are here, and assuming Christ has not come, that date is coming. When I hope for it, when I long for it, I'm hoping and longing for something that is going to happen. And there are certain things that we do in honor of that date. I love our Christmas Eve service. I love gathering with you guys. And uh, telling the story of Christmas, of Luke 2, on a, I love that we leave in the night just reminded, remembering what it was that a babe was born in the darkness, that a star lit the sky for the uh, shepherds to gather and, and, and see and witness and behold uh, the promised one given forth. And I love that we get up Christmas morning with our families, and in our family we celebrate the birth of Christ and, uh, and we have various traditions. One of those is we give gifts to one another uh, because of, uh, not just because it's Jesus' birthday, but because he's the ultimate gift that God has given us. And every other little gift reminds us of God's goodness and the ultimate gift of Christ, who would take our place in judgment. And then we eat quite a bit. And uh, we start with uh, Ken Nippert gives us a Danish from Wisconsin uh, uh, every Christmas. I don't know when this tradition began, but I hope it doesn't end anytime soon. It's delicious. And then I make uh, my father's scrambled eggs. It's, uh, we have a secret family recipe. We have a secret ingredient for scrambled eggs. You're going how? How could that be? Just trust me, it is. Y'all, in fact, y'all know what it is? I'm not going to tell you. Uh, It's the only secret ingredient I got in my whole arsenal. Of all the unbelievable things my grandmother used to make, I I don't have any of them, and that saddens me. But I do have this one thing. My father used to make Christmas eggs with a secret ingredient. I've got it. My boys think they know what it is, but they don't. Um, But I've got it, and it will be passed down generation to generation. And the eggs, eggs, as far as eggs can go... They taste categorically different. It only takes a little of the secret ingredient, and they have a certain and distinct taste. And it's awesome. And you're eating them, and the boys will say, and I will say, man, we should always eat our eggs like that. We say, no, just Christmas. Because we want to, 364, be reminded on this one day of something extra special. We want to have our hearts set towards the special nature of Christ incarnated in the flesh to take our place in judgment. We're reminded of the goodness and the sweetness that there's just something better than anything else we'll experience in this world that's found only in Christ. And then family comes over, aunts and uncles and nephews and nieces and cousins. We play and then we eat apple pie, pecan pie, chocolate pie. You take your pick, I pick all three. Then we fellowship together and then for dinner, I eat more pie. And uh, I long for that day. And I want to tell you with a great biblical hope, I long because there's a, a, a blessed anticipation of what is coming. Uh, had a chance to speak at a uh, camp, uh, f- a family camp uh, in South Carolina uh, this last summer. It was so great. What was great was that Right for the first time, Catherine and I can remember, our boys are of an age, teenagers and almost teenagers, and of a, of a different level of social and spiritual maturity than things we've done like this in the past. And they had counselors who really loved Jesus and were fun and poured into him, invested into him. And they, they just met the Lord in that place. It was a spiritual high. We were together on the mountaintop. And man, we were fellowship with, fellowshipping with great saints, it's like Paul writes to the saints, around great food centered ultimately in the Word and presence of God in a spectacular, scenic location. And so inevitably, as the trip waned down towards the end, I began to hear people say, the inevitable thing that you hear uh, things like this, man, I hate that we got to go back to the real world. And even my own boys, we got in the car, and that's what they expressed. We don't want to leave this place and this thing that we've experienced. We don't want to go back to life as we know. We don't want to go back to the real world. Can I tell you something? I will push back on that. I will push back to say that we live in a fallen world and we see with fallen eyes. But what we see is not as real as what we will one day see. And understand, those, when you get to experience those mountaintops, those spiritual highs, I want you to understand, that is a foretaste of eternal glory. By the way, it doesn't even scratch the surface of how good it's going to be. Because you will be with the saints. You will be eating the goodness of the fruit of trees that produce in every season. You will be surrounded, surrounding in the very center, of the very presence of God in a scenic setting beyond words. Now that's, what you're in now is a sliver of eternity. That's where you and I are going to spend eternity. Camp in this, a, a, a Christian camp get you out of this fallen world to see the real world. Sunday morning gatherings, by the way, one reason I would exhort you to be here, even when you don't feel like it, is because we need to have the spiritual man in us awakened to reality again, that we don't merely get our heads down, distracted, detoured, doing our deal, our little worldly life in the sin-stained fallen world, and lose sight of of the real world. C.S. Lewis said, these are the shadow lands. You don't believe what's coming when, when the eyes of your heart are opened and it's unveiled. There's a hope of your calling that is meant to be your daily experience of your God. We're meant to be a people that are just, that are just overflowing with hope. You mean even in, a, in a, the toughest season of my life I've ever been in? Even there. Even in that place even in difficult circumstances, even in tragedy, because you've got a hope that's an assurance. And you have moments like these that are reminders and foretastes, shadows of the substance to come in glory. Well, number one, Paul says, I, he's praying, you who get right here the theology of the gospel, I'm hoping right here you're filled with hope. Pray, God, fill them with the hope of their calling. Do you feel that? That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants every day. And then he goes on to say, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? By the way, one more word before I leave hope. I realize the last 18 months for many has kind of been a beat down. It's been unusual at best. It's been just extremely difficult at worst. It's been, it's been something that has a hope-sucking effect to it. It's kind of sapped the energy and hope out of many of us. Can I tell you what we need to do as believers in the times that we're living in? You and I have to Take the theology of three through 14. Okay, wait a minute, pause. There is a sovereign and infinitely wise and holy God. He does know me in the depths of my rebellion and sin. He has predestined me according to his eternal wisdom and mercy. He's chosen me and he's gone to the mountainside with the boots on and adopted me who had the mark of displeasure, sin. And he's taken me not merely for a slave, but for a son. He's redeemed me by the blood of his own that I might be adopted as a co-heir with his only begotten of his coming kingdom. And he's placed his spirit inside of me which grieves sins, gifts me to edify his body of the church, seals me, and is a guarantee of my eternity and glory. In a day that is sucking the hope out of the believer, we are to lift our eyes to the heavens and remember what our God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit has done for us. And hope is meant to be stirred again, that we are a people of of, uh, impenetrable hope, even in the darkest of days. Well, second, Paul wants you to know, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? I had to read this a dozen times to make sure I wasn't messing the pronouns up and missing it. Then I went to some commentaries to make sure I wasn't going to screw this up. And I think I got it. All right, what this is saying is, what are the riches of his? That's not yours. That's his. That's Christ's Glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul wants you to know what the riches of Christ's inheritance is in you. In other words, this is not what's your inheritance in him. It's what's his inheritance in you. And you go, well, why did he write that one? Because that's a really big deal that you understand the weight of your value to Christ. That alone would radically change the way we live. Any psychologist, Christian or not, would probably be willing to say, hey, what's critical for any human being to do well, I'm I'm trying to put this in even worldly terms, to succeed in life, to have uh, success and joy and peace, would be self-esteem, would be self-worth, would be, uh, s- sensing some kind of inherent value that you wouldn't, so, so those that have that are on one path in life. Those that don't, those that see themselves as worthless, failures of no value or dignity, no self-esteem, or low, they're on a different path that is a dangerous path, that is a path that can lead to very heartbreaking and destructive places. Well, Paul says, hey, Christian, you need to know something. You need to know what is his glorious inheritance in you, the saint. In other words, Soup explained this to me 20 years ago with a story. It's a little bit abrupt or abrasive, but I'm going to give it to you. I think it's a good illustration. He said, Kenan, if you were to commit an act of murder, Lord forbid, and uh, you were caught, and you were tried, and I showed up at the courtroom to support you. And the judge said, "Hey, justice must be done. Capital punishment for you. It's going to be a life for life." And if I stood up and said, "You understand, this guy's a great guy. That was really out of character. It's not like him. He can do a lot of good." Yada yada. And the judge says, "I'm sorry. Justice must be served. It's the way it's going to be." And uh, if you you looked at me and said, "Is there nothing else can be done?" And the judge says, "There must be justice." If I said, "Okay, judge." What if I take my son, Jonathan, and I give my son to pay the price of Kenan's sin? Can Kenan go free of Kenan's crime? And if the judge said, well, if you want to do that, but that would mean your son's going to have to die. And he says, okay, I'll do it. And Jonathan takes the hit. He dies for my sin, for my crime. Soup said, now, just imagine that 20 years later I run into you. I say, how you doing, man? I'm like, man, I'm just tired and beat down, and I'm I'm a huge failure. My life is meaningless, and I'm just worthless. He goes, I want you to know what I would do. I would go get a (laughs) two-by-four, and I would come back, and I'd hit you as hard as I could in the head. Because you're telling me that you're worthless when I paid the price of my only son for you? Uh, super wanted to illustrate this with the watch he was wearing, so I'll do the same. If I was going to sell you this watch, he said, I don't really like that watch. Well, I need to sell it. I'm hurting. Can you buy it from me? All right, I'll give you a dollar. This watch, you got, this watch is worth way more than a dollar. You say, man, I'm only paying a dollar. I don't really like the watch. <laughs> well, then what's that watch worth? It's worth a dollar because that's what you're willing to give. But if you're one who loves this watch, I've been looking for that exact watch. They don't even sell that watch anymore. That watch is a collector's item. i give you $1,000 I watch. i say, whoa, you might need to know this is just a knockoff. Well, I love it. I'll give you that. You'll give a $1,000? You tell me now, what's this watch worth? It's worth $1,000. The watch is worth what someone's willing to pay for it. Christian, you need to hear this. You are worth what God was willing to pay for you. That's what you're worth to him. You are worth exactly what he was willing to pay for you. You know what Paul says? I want you to understand that. I want you to understand the weight of your worth in God's eyes. I want you to understand the riches of Christ's glorious inheritance in you. That's what you're worth to God. You're worth Christ to the Father. Take a long time to get our minds around that. Any of y'all like Toy Story? That's still popular in our, ho- in our home. I like Toy Story. Uh, you get Woody, it's a story about worth and value and Woody is really struggling with his value because Woody was, a, was an old school toy and man, now there's Buzz Lightyear. I mean, this dude's to infinity and beyond. All right, he's just, he's all bowed up, he's got a lot of swagger. And uh, he shines and he can do all kind of cool stuff. He just do all the stuff that Woody can only dream of doing. And Woody's like, man, I'm nothing compared to this guy. And Woody's in a big self-pity party until the other toys gather around him. And they say, come on, man, you got to snap out of it. And he's going, nah, but there's, I'm just, there's buzz, you know. And that's all Andy cares about. And they said, Woody, look at your boot. And Woody had to look at the bottom of his boot. And remember what he saw? Written on the bottom of his boot is Andy. That permanently inscribed on his being is the mark of his master. And his worth is defined by that mark. That's you and me. You may feel beat down. You may feel like a failure. We all fail. You may feel worthless. But you and I, Paul says, hey, you got to look inside. The eyes, your heart, you have been marked by the mark of the master. You are his. He delights in you. You are the riches of Christ's glorious inheritance. You need to understand your value to God. I know, if you're like me, that one's hard. This is the, that's the hardest one for me. I'm sure it's from some wound or something. It's just hard for me to see myself as that valuable to God. I can't get my mind around it. But you're as valuable to God as Jesus is. He paid Jesus' blood for you. Paul says, I want you to know the hope of your calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance in you, in the saints, that's your value, and third, in what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. just his power. I just want you to know his power or even the greatness of his power. He wants you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. No matter how I preach this, I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to dumb down what Paul is actually trying to get to because it's just beyond what I can do, what I can give credence to in a few moments with human language. He wants you to know the very power of Christ risen from the dead, alive in you today and every day. He wants you to be enlivened by that power. He wants you to know it. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? He who raised Christ from the dead and gave him all authority and seated him at the right hand of heaven heavens wants you to know that power. Understand in the historical context of when this was written, power was the chief virtue in Ephesus, which again was a, was a big city full of witchcraft, and uh, sorcery, and all kinds of pagan idolatry and immorality. That's just what it was. It was the epicenter. Remember, schools, training up witches was one of the things they were famous for in Ephesus. Matter of fact, if you remember Ephesians uh, Acts 19, when Paul preached in Ephesus, and some came to Christ, you know what they did? They brought their books of sorcery and magic arts, and they made a huge bonfire, because they're leaving this cultic demonic worship for Christ, and it said that the bonfire, the, the books were so many, they uh, were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. That's just from the converts, and they're old sorcery books. In the very next chapter, it says that the pagans in Ephesus, reacting to what the Christians were doing, coming to Christ, they freaked out, went into the temple, and began chanting, great is Artemis. Of the Ephesians, they chanted this for two hours. Let me tell you what's going on. In that context, the way that you got power was you had to join a a a uh, a little society of 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 sorcery or witches. There was there was multiple like almost like fraternities. I don't know I don't know how to explain it other than you would go get in a little secret society where they practiced certain arts. Okay. Um, magic arts, dark arts, this whole thing, everything I'm telling you is demonic. And, and to uh, have power, which, by the way, was real, you would go, you would join, and then you would begin to practice. The way they practiced worshiping their little g, gods and goddesses, was through chanting the name of the gods and goddesses, still the way uh, this operates today. And they would chant the name. So that's why they were chanting Great as Artemis uh, of the Ephesians. They wanted a power in response to the power of the gospel that was setting people free. They were trying to access the power of your g gods. They split up the spiritual realm into rulers, authorities, powers, and dominions. That's the way the Ephesians saw... The spiritual world. Rulers, authorities, powers, and dominions. You joined your little cult, you chanted the name, and you got powers from the spiritual world that you were able to call upon in this world. Very real. Spiritual forces of darkness, very alive in that. It's important to remember the words in the gospel that the one who is in you is stronger than he who's in the world. Now, understand this. In light of the context that that's what people were doing for power, that's what was being practiced, let me just now read what Paul says in light of what I've told you. Just hear the words again. Paul wants you as a Christian to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe Paul is desperately pleading that you would understand there's no power source in this world, of worldly sort or of demonic sort, of spiritual sort, that compares to the immeasurable greatness of the power of God uh, uh, displayed when he raised Christ from the dead and experienced by you because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you. The greatest power in the universe is the power of God. And if you could take it and put it in this tiny little package and then insert it in the heart of the believer, God says, that's what I've done. Two reasons. Number one, don't fear any of the other powers operating in this world. Even the spiritual forces of darkness, some scary stuff. Don't fear it. Church in Ephesus, don't fear all this chanting and the accumulating of this demonic power that's going to torture and kill you. Don't fear it. He who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. He who's in you is greater than any name that can possibly be named. They come against you with powers lesser than the one that's in you. By the way, you know what the number one command, most consistent command from Genesis to Revelation is do not fear. Now, this is crazy. This is one of the things you learn at seminary that blew all my, my gaskets. Do you know how many times in the Bible the commands given do not fear from Genesis to Revelation? 365 times. If you think that's a coincidence, you don't know God. It's not. What he's saying is, draw on my power, 24-hour supply of the Holy Spirit, every day for 365 days, and you have nothing to fear. And why would we be afraid? Can we just kind of, we're just trying to kind of cruise through life and have our, our needs met, right? No! The gospel is meant to be pushing forth The kingdom of darkness pushing forth to the very ends of the earth. We're supposed to be pushing out into a world suppressing truth. You can see that. Watch a couple commercials this afternoon, and you'll see a darkened world suppressing truth. And you and I are supposed to be vocal. We're supposed to be unashamed. We're supposed to be heralds of the gospel and those who make disciples of Jesus Christ. It goes like this. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. You've been given an unbelievable, it's a mission we can't actually do apart from his power, but we've been entrusted with that. It's a stewardship. He's given us the Great Commission. It's a scary thing if you're going apart from the power of God through his Holy Spirit. But you participate in the Great Commission. You go out this week and you say, God, I want to know your power, then don't hide in your bedroom all week. You ask for that, you go out there as a bold adventurer for Christ. You ask to see people how God sees them. You ask for, ask, you know what, here's a daring word. Ask for an opportunity to share the gospel with someone this week that doesn't know Jesus. Some of you just get, get a little short of breath thinking about it. Good! It's not meant to be done in your power. That will remind you to Pray. God, give me grace sufficient for my need. Your power's going to be perfect in my weakness. I can't do this. Now we're tapping into something here. Now this gets exciting. And when God presents that opportunity and the Spirit of God takes over, you'll begin to understand the immeasurably great power of God that is alive in you. When you see that power at work in you and then through you to bring transformation and light into darkness, transferring human beings from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, you will say his name is above every name. There's resurrection power in me. Paul says, Christian, you've got to know this. You've got to know this. It can't stay up here. It's got to be a spilling out of hope, a deep understanding of your worth to God, and an ever-present power for the Great Commission. John Stott, know one of the really smart guys I like to read, reminds me of how frail and uh, unintelligent I am. He says um, that hope of his calling, that's, that's, that's the past, what he has done. You're not any more who you were. He has redeemed you. And the, the glorious inheritance of Christ in his presence, the saints will be gathered around him, he has won us for himself in the Father's glory, he delighted in the cross, uh, scorning its shame for the joy set before him, that's us, that that's the future, and the present, the immeasurably great power, the surpassing greatness of his power, because you've been commissioned to take the message of Christ and the gospel into a world that the the best thing they can imagine doing is chanting the names of false gods to experience some level of dignity or self-worth or power and Paul will say that's not just sad, that's not just tragic, it's rubbish Uh, imagine if you had to have cataract surgery and the doc came in Really, he came highly recommended, supposed to be the best around. He came in, and and you notice he's holding a, um, a can opener and a rusty knife. He said, "Doc, what do you have in mind?" He said, "Well, I, you know, I'm 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 going to do your surgery, and don't worry, I'm the best there is." He Kind of gets closer to you with his can opener, and you're going, "Doc, what are you doing? What what about the you know what about the lasers and the you know the, all the technological advancement here in a s- scalpel?" And the doc says. Psh- Anybody can do it with that. Only I can do it with these tools. Can I tell you why God uses you and I? He says to Satan, I'm about to display my power. I'm going to take can openers and rusty knives and I'm going to put on display the work of the master. You make yourself available the surpassing greatness of the power of the living God is going to be alive. Last thing I'll say, Dr. Hendricks, my favorite prof ever, would say to us at the end of class every once in a while, he'd growl at us. He'd say, um, men, I believe in you. usually near the end of a semester of his class. I believe in you. And you would start to go, okay, all right then. Maybe I can do something. And he'd say, because I believe in the Holy Spirit that's in you. And you'd go, oh yeah, oh yeah. I can do nothing apart from him. But he's in you. And I believe in you. Paul says, Christian, don't just know it here. Let your hearts burn with hope and with value and with power. Father, I pray that you would help us be a people who hear these words just as that little house church in Ephesus would in the middle of a a world of dark arts they were called to have power and have hope and know their value and it was meant to change the experience of their life every single day that they might and that we might know you O Lord starting with me this is my prayer and for these dear saints at harvest this is my prayer that we might be a people who know God. To the power of your word and your spirit, we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen.